Welcome to episode 114 of the Jackson Hole Connection. This episode's sponsor is Prue Real Estate. Should you have any questions about real estate in Jackson Hole, give Dan Vazoski or Greg Prue a call or visit Prue.com. That's P-R-U-G-H.com to search current listings. Hello from Jackson Hole. I'm Stephan Abrams, your host and guide today. Each week, I sit with someone connected to Jackson Hole to share their fascinating story about life. I feel we all have so much to learn from each other, and I intend to search people out and their stories, which will teach us a little about life outside of our everyday circle of friends. Today's guest is Gavin Fine, local entrepreneur, future ski bum, father and husband, community volunteer, and all around a true mentor to his team. Soon after graduating from college, Gavin followed his dream to live in a ski town. So in 1996, while jamming to the Allman Brothers Band on the cassette player, Gavin arrived in this small mountain town, which he now calls home. From the beginning, Gavin found a way to survive here in Jackson by juggling multiple jobs and at the same time, a robust social calendar. He opened his first business only a few months before the 9-11 attack and now has grown his business holdings to 10 businesses, which employs just around 300 people. Gavin shares with us why this community has been so important to him and his philosophies about work and life, which have propelled him to be a successful entrepreneur and an involved community leader. Gavin, welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. Thank you for taking time out to, to be a guest today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So let's start off with you sharing your road to Jackson Hole. How long have you been here and how did you get here? Oh, yeah. Um, it's uh, the road less traveled. Yeah, yes. So uh, I graduated college in May of 1996 uh, and I was going to go to Teach for America, but I put my application in too late as a stupid college kid. Uh, and so I didn't uh, get um, I didn't get it in. And then I was like, what am I going to do? And I always sort of had this dream of moving to a ski town and uh, going to ski as a kid with my brother. We always loved the vibe uh, of just the people that were there, whether it was the Bellman or that was the Lifties or it was a restaurant people or wherever. We always had this dream. Uh, my brother and I that it would be really cool to leave, live in that and so uh, my brother had already moved to New York so he wasn't in so my buddy that I grew up with in uh, high school in Chicago I was like what are you doing he's like I don't know I was like I'm thinking about going to Jackson Hole so I did I sort of got into uh, first car I ever had um, was a Buick LeSabre which is a really cool kid car in your senior year in college but at least I got a car um, I bought a car for 5,000 bucks, I remember. And I drove my Buick LeSaver, my grandfather car, uh, to Chicago, uh, where I'm from, from upstate New York, from where my college was, and packed up my stuff and uh, just drove out here. Uh, a lot of Almond Brothers. And I still remember the day rounding, you know, sort of Hoback, you know, sort of like in that sort of canyon there. And a lot of you know, let the soul shine a couple of just, it was a lot of replay of, uh, on, it was a tapes back then or a CD, I can't remember, <laughs> in my, in my Le Saver. 
Uh, and I sort of made it out here, I think that first week in June or something like that of 1996. And that was the road uh, and uh, with not a plan other than to um, live here for the summer um, and then the winter and then figure out the rest of my life after that. And that was, that was the road here uh, from Ithaca, New York to Chicago to Jackson Hole with a stop in a Nebraska hotel somewhere. I think I can remember sort of that was a kind of the halfway point, 10 hours from driving from Chicago to here, some torrential downpour of rain in the flats there, which is a kind of a horrible drive, you know, sort of like it's pretty super flat from here to Chicago, especially once you get down to, you know, the only part of it is from here to Rock Springs-ish till you get on to 80 or 90 or whatever that is uh, that's got any sort of scenery. So um, that was the road. So almost 20, what is that? 96 to now. So in my 25th year, I think 24 years, something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Thanks. I yeah. passed the Michael Jordan 23. And then <laughs> yeah. and, and making a note. So people know that you have a picture behind you with, uh, that you said is Michael Jordan's last shot against the Utah jazz. Yep. Game six to win the uh, to win the sixth championship. Yeah, all right, correct. So you're a fan. I am a fan. Yes, I grew up, you know, in Chicago, and <laughs> I happened to actually well, happen to have my Cubs shirt on too, right? And I've got a Cubs thing back there. So, yeah, nice. Those are my two good. Uh, the Bulls not as much anymore, but when I was younger. But the Cubs are still a really healthy addiction. Yeah, sports yeah. sports is definitely a good healthy addiction. Yeah. No. Not when you're a Cubs fan, but yeah. But, <laughs> So when, when you got here, you're now in the restaurant industry and other aspects of, uh, of business. What did you start doing when you first landed here in Jackson? Well, like any person back then, I sort of uh, had three jobs. Um, so I got here, I got a job at the um, Snake River Grill as the pizza guy in the pizza. So I was in the pizza window and I was a barista um, in the mornings and uh, in a little cafe uh, um, shop. And then I was a sort of a manny uh, for um, actually, you know, I worked for, I, I helped out with Harrison Ford's kids at the time. Um, and so, yeah, those were my three jobs um, working at the time. It was kind of work nights and, you know, I'd wake up like any good 21 year old having fun, uh, trying to get to my barista job. Um, but yeah, there was a really, only the smells and um, the nice people kind of brought me in. But yeah, I couldn't, I can't I remember those days of trying to wake up at 5.45 and getting there after a night of having some fun um, after work at the stagecoach or somewhere else. But yeah, usually the old stagecoach, yes. Yeah. The old stagecoach. Yeah, well, back in the day, a lot of us yeah. lived, you know, out there and yeah, it was yeah. a little cheaper rent for, for 21-year-olds around there. So it was a good, it was a good walking home area. So, yeah. And, and share with us, when you opened your first business here yeah so in uh you know i stayed the summer stayed the winter and i'm like all right well i had a good time being a ski bum and working all those jobs but i wasn't i realized that i don't think i could do it for the rest of my life um so but now i'm trying to get back to be a ski bum by the way so i've got a all goal right. of, of trying to get back to be a ski bum by a certain age yeah i don't know a couple of years into living here i sort of sort of had this idea, you know, one point that I wanted to be a chef and I kind of was like, oh, I'll go back to culinary school. But I, I went to hotel restaurant management school. What That's where I came from. So that was my 
background. So it was, um, I was technically doing something in the industry, but just not like what all my friends from college were doing and sort of the cities and management rotation programs, et cetera. But I uh, decided a couple of years in, I thought I wanted to be a chef and I was like, oh, I don't want to go back to culinary school. And then I got into super into wine um, and was like, all right, I want to get in the wine business. Um, and then I realized I kind of didn't want to do that either. But during that time, I went and sort of studied wine and, you know, kind of got my sommelier and thought I was going to do it. And I, I got set up. And I went to Italy and France uh, for about three months. Um, and I took a sort of sabbatical from work, if you will. I went over there and worked in a bunch of vineyards and um, by myself and just traveled and ate and drank, which was pretty cool. And so I, during that time in 2000, I wrote like a couple of business plans for a bistro and like an Italian restaurant while I would be sitting there by myself each night. And, um, I met people, obviously, like, and everybody was super nice and friendly, but um, I had a lot of time for myself. So I kept a journal about eating and drinking in, in Europe. And uh, and at that point, I came back and, you know, kind of came up with this idea of trying to open up a bistro in, in Jackson. Uh, and then in July, you know, kind of mid-July of 2001, is when we opened a couple months before 9-11. So it was a real uh, <laughs> interesting time to open a restaurant. Um, but that's kind of, that is the story. You only you only opened a few months before 9-11. Two months before 9-11. I think we opened July 15th or something like that. July 12th, 15th. I can't remember exactly. Somewhere mid-July of, uh, of, yeah, 2011. Huh. And it was crazy. However, it was a it was open to a very big success because it was an interesting concept for Jackson because it was everything on the menu was under 20 bucks. You know, what I learned over in Europe was, you know, it was a really wasn't supposed to be um, didn't have to be fancy and it didn't have to be expensive. And you could still deliver good food, good service, um, you know, for the right price and, and bistros, you know, were around forever. And that food, that comfort food, we could find cuts of meat that we would braise and and I found all these wines at that point and we had hundred wines on the list for under 30 bucks as well. Cause I hated, I remember on my first couple of dates going out that, you know, you find the least expensive wine on a restaurant menu. <laughs> like you, like there was one of them there and you felt like a schmuck, you know, and it was like, that was what you could afford. And, you know, cause there was only one that was under a certain amount and then everything was there. So you meant to, we meant to feel like an idiot a, a bit. And so I wanted to like take that away and like, have all these really cool so i got all these awesome rones and giant rattles you know it was a french bistro french american bistro but we had a lot of rones and i also found a really cool things in italy as well that were you know um that weren't sort of top tier had to you know that we were able to do so it was a really cool i think entree in for you know people that were our age at the time you know that would go be able to go out and not have to break the bank and they could get you know they could not spend a lot of money and, and have a great night out or they could you know obviously spend a bunch of money and eat oysters and um, other stuff that was there but it was really geared towards you know we wanted you there you know bistros are meant to go there every day or you go three four times a week and you know feel comfortable so that was that was what it was about and you know we we stayed for a while for everything under 20 bucks the steak frites was at 20 bucks and you know, we, we did our best to kind of combat inflation, but we, we obviously broke the barrier about 10 years in, I think. But I stayed for 10 years, I think, with everything other than oysters and daily specials at uh, everything $20 and under. And we always aim to have almost 100 wines for 30 bucks and under at that time, too, for that first time. Now, I think it's now not, now not possible uh, <laughs> where it is, but not for what we're <laughs> uh, but we, we hung on for a while. So during 9-11, when it was all crazy, you know, like 
the stuff that was at the higher end, like it was definitely, we succeeded pretty well because it was a comforting place to go and created this sort of camp dining room atmosphere and it wasn't expensive. Um, and so, yeah. Congratulations. And, and wow, to keep a price on your, a product on your menu, consistent price for 10 years. That's, that's a strong statement. Great accomplishment too. Thanks. And food business, that's not easy to do. We knew that uh, the locals were our bread and butter always. And, um, you know, even though we were in a tourist town, that the locals were our best marketing. The locals were, would be able to come in multiple times and they were going to pay the bills. And, you know, when there was the spikes in tourism in the summer and, and then back then, as you know, the winter was pretty dead still around here. We had, you know, Christmas and a couple little bit in February, maybe March. But, you no, know, it was a real struggle in the wintertime. Uh, to make some money um so you know we knew that we really had to be attractive to uh the crowd and there was a big generation of people moving here that were our age and that we wanted to get them to come out and they had money but they didn't you know they couldn't you know once a once a month but how could we get them to come out a couple times a week and feel comfortable for that whatever disposable income they had and not break the bank so yeah that's great and and so I now saw you in there a as, couple times. I've seen you there, so thank you. I've I've been there many times. <laughs> I know I know you were there back in the day. <laughs> oh yeah, it was it was the place to go for sure. Now that my wife and I have kids, and even before the whole pandemic thing, we just yeah. didn't go out to eat much because yeah. paying for a babysitter was more than the dinner. <laughs> yep. I know. I know. And, I don't know. Add in if you want to take a taxi because you want to have a couple glasses of wine because you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Drink- your, uh, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And so now how many businesses do you have? It's a good question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> take the gloves off your, your hands so you can, yeah. Right. I'm just trying to think, right. Um, right. The bistro, bistro catering, uh, roadhouse, um, roadhouse beer, uh, Osteria, um, the kitchen, bin 22, uh, bodega, uh, bovine and swine and cream and sugar, 10. 10 businesses. Yeah. And coming from, you know, growing up in Chicago and starting with one restaurant, how do you manage and oversee and keep it all together and being a dad too of operating 10 businesses? Uh, A lot of namastes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know the answer to that one. I don't have a good answer. I I am uh, lucky to be, I have great people, you know, like, you know, at the beginning, obviously, um, you know, we were a small 30 person company, you know, we had 35 employees when we opened the bistro, that was kind of like, when we were like, Oh my God, it was crazy. Um, you know, now we have over 300, you know, employees. Um, and so, you know, I've got really awesome people that I've hired and, uh, and have been with me for a long time. And, you know, without that, it just obviously would not succeed. You know, to me, the key is to have really good leaders. And now it's about, now my job is really about building leaders within inside our company because I still try to you know touch every person, but it's it's hard to obviously have the same impact on 300 you know over time and running a business as I used to have on 35 people. So now it's about building leaders and uh, building a culture that the people want to come work with and be a part of. And cultures culture is a huge thing for me. Uh, always has been. I kind of as you saw the sports background that I see the pictures, you know, like managing, managing, a, you know, restaurants and businesses is like managing a ball team, and, you know, different, not everybody is going to be the Michael Jordans. And so you need people that are, you know, willing to do 
all different um, jobs and in the restaurants or shops and they all need to be recognized the same and how do they feel special in that own right so um but yeah it's you know some days are more of a battle than others as you know um, <laughs> and you know the employees are probably the most gratifying thing that i do but it's also the most difficult thing for sure everyone's like oh how do you, you know deal with 350 people all the time and all that i'm like yeah it's tough but it is still the most gratifying part of my job because you know as i said at the beginning of this call you know, I wanted to be a teacher as well. And so I do love that aspect of, of creating a, an environment where there is teaching and people are learning. And um, so, but yeah, and then I guess some, some luck. So, well, I would say if you, if it has come down to luck, it's, you've had a lot of great luck, but it's because you're dedicated, committed and true to your word with, with your staff. And uh, they see that and your customers see it as well. Thanks. So, Let's take a quick break for a word from one of our sponsors, and then we'll be right back, Gavin. Sounds great. No problem. When you are thinking about making a real estate decision, it is important to go with someone you can trust. Recently, I trusted Dan Vazoski at Pru Real Estate to personally handle a real estate transaction. The service and attention I received demonstrated I am important. Greg Pru started Pru Real Estate in 2002 with you, the customer in mind. Give Greg or Dan a call at 307-733-9888 or visit pru.com. That's P-R-U-G-H.com to get connected today. Let them know you heard about them from Stefan. That's me, the podcast guy. Gavin, welcome back. And we just touched on how after being here for you know roughly 25 years or so, you've now grown into 10 businesses. You have 300 employees and you're talking about building people into leaders, growing the next um, stage of leadership. Yep. And I'm, I'm curious, where did you learn um, that type of philosophy from? Do you have a mentor or have you had some mentors who've helped guide you through this path to, to be able to see this successful, fabulous growth in this community? Well, you know, I think that the answer is no, I haven't had just one person. I mean, my father is a really great man. And so to be a really good person and treat people well, and, you know, I learned to treat others how you want to be treated. And, you know, as far as morals and all of that, I, I attribute to my, my parents. Um, and as far as sort of mentorship and sort of the business stuff, I would say, yeah, I've seen over the years working with different sort of restaurant people and wine people and chefs in um, other cities, I've just done my best to be a awesome fly on the wall and try to gather as much, you know, informational, cultural, you know, experiential data in my head as possible and, and go from there. What I, what I've learned, you know, and then a lot of reading of, you know, I'm super into, like I said, sort of, books of like learning how to be a leader and you know what what it takes and what do people want and I would say people follow people you know so they're only going to follow a company for so long and so I, I knew that from an early age that you know like people follow the leaders and good leaders people want to work for them and so and it's so important because you could go work for 
whatever, let's call it Starbucks for a second here or big company that, you know, you heard was a great company or Four Seasons back in the day, you know, was like everybody talked about how amazing in Toronto based sort of Canadian company and like growing up learning was like, they were an amazing company to work for. Um, and, you know, how, how they treated their employees and how their culture was and how awesome that was. But eventually that, you know, that'll get you in the door and that'll get you to come work for that company. But eventually it is about who your direct manager is and who your leader is and your day-to-day interaction. And so um, that's going to keep you there or want you, or that person's going to teach you um, something, a skill that maybe you didn't know that you were, you know, that you didn't, in the restaurant business, you didn't know you loved wine. And it was like, there was teaching going on and you learned about that, or it was beer, or it was service or food, you know, and we've had people all throughout the years come in and, you know, the best people are like really excited to come in and work and are sort of a clean slate and they're just excited to learn, but you need a leader or a manager to teach those people to get the most out of them. And I, all throughout, I still believe the same thing that that, that, that and treating people fairly is going to keep them there and have a culture of that. And you'll grow these people that will hopefully want to take your job and they take that person's job. And then you'll always have a bench. You'll have a minor league, you know, growing to get to 300 people. We need to have, we need to have bench strength. We need to have a minor league system that's coming through. And if you put somebody in too early, right. It's like baseball analogy. There's a reason why there's a minor leagues, right. A, a fastball in the minors is 85 to 90, a fastball you know, or whatever, a fastball in the major leagues is 90 to 95. A curveball, you know, drops, you know, two and a half feet in the major leagues. It drops a foot and a half in the minor leagues. If you move somebody up too fast, they won't feel good about themselves and they can't hit the 95 mile an hour, 95 mile an hour fastball or see that curveball that'll move. But if you train them and you're in the minor leagues and they learn how to have success and feel good about themselves at the 85, 90, and then they're like, great that helps to build them. So we're always keeping that, you know, keeping that minor league system and that bench strength working, but somebody needs to develop those skills or else they'll just sit there. And my guess is, is that, you know, they got to have a lot of fortitude to keep coming to ask you to learn more. So it is about teaching the managers to recognize that, you know, you're there for them. You're there to also teach them. Yes. There's also the customers that are out there um, that we need to serve, but, you know, our, our motto is definitely our employees are first, no matter what. I'm sure people won't want to hear this on the, but you know, the customer isn't always right. No offense, you know? And so, you know, in our book, we really want to make sure that the employee has the power and, you know, more so than the customer. And then eventually they'll, they'll figure out how to make the customer right. For sure. If they have enough inside of them to make, to make good decisions. So I guess that's, that's one way. And we still teach that um, to this day and do manager trainings twice a year. Um, do restaurant trainings twice a year that are cultural, but it's really a bonding experience and trying to create teams um, for sure. And then there's the technical part about learning about food, wine, beer, you know, service, but you got to feel good about where you're going into work, as you know, um, excited to like get up every day and to go into that place. Whether you're a dishwasher, you're a sommelier, you're a server, you're a manager, um, you've got to have something that's going to drive you besides just a paycheck um, that's going to bring you in there. And ultimately, it's about the people that you're that we're around uh, that are going to create that. So we work hard on creating really good, you know, cultural fun environments for people where they're like, great, it's awesome. Fired up to come into work. Yeah, it sucks. I got to work every day or like my kids say, I got to go to school or, you know, I'm like, yeah, you you do. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so you might as well, you know, figure out how to make it fun. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said, Gavin. Yeah. Well said. And, and I like what you uh, touched on as far as 
customer and, and I completely agree with you. The customer is not always right. It's, we just have to make them feel as though that they are important and help them through the process. I think more than anything, because there are times that the customer is not right. right. And, and I think that comes down to, we are all people and everybody can make a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And in our industry, right. It's like, you know, it's so crazy, right? So like in restaurant industry and bars, like nowhere else do you go to like a department store where you're like, you know, I've been in here five times, you know, and like now they, you know, like, you know, I bought four jeans from you. Like, can I get a fifth? But like people come to a bar and like they sit there four times, right? And they're like, I deserve a free drink, you know, I'm like, you know, it's like, you know, because you came in five times, but like, you know, when I go buy jeans at the gap or something like that, you know, it's like the fifth time I come in, I don't get a free pair of jeans, you know, it's like, there's something about, you know, and, and it's like this, you know, whatever. It's a, it's part of what it is. It's kind of interesting. Right. But it, it is a part of it, um, of what we do. And, you know, and like, you know, I, I understand discounts on stuff for sure if it's not getting off the shelves and people want to get inventory out whether it's in the clothing industry or the wine industry but you know like i think that there's there's something about it where hey if i patronize your place a lot like you know don't i deserve something and so we got to navigate that because everybody has like this sign around their neck that says when they walk in is like make me feel important right they really do and that's like that's what we teach our people is like they do. Everybody has a different, they all have the same sign and everybody needs it in a different way because we're all human. But how do you make them feel important and welcome into a place? And like they, they are the most important thing in the world at that moment. And that, that's hospitality. It's obviously not the restaurant industry. Guys like Danny Meyer have written awesome books about it. And, you know, in the hospitality business and, you know, we do talk about hospitality a lot. You know, it, it is, you know, it's so important. Because, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people are making great food and, you know, Jackson's changed over 20 years, 25 years I've lived here. There's a lot of great restaurants now, right? And the cities, there's a lot of great places to go. But, you know, your food tastes better when you have a nice interaction with somebody or whether it's at the host stand or whether it's on the phone before you come in or whether it's, a, you know, your food is going to taste better because your brain tells you that you're in a better euphoric state to, you know, whatever, to eat the you know, chicken noodle soup or, or, or burger or whatever, it, it, there's a difference. And so it is about the experience of, you know, shopping um, for sure. That's why they play music. And, you know, those studies about like, you know, you play music, good, fun music in, in stores. So people feel better, you know, they're in a better mood and then they'll buy stuff more. But the same thing with us, it's like, hey, they got to feel good while they're sitting there because they're going to enjoy their food and drink way more if they have that experience, um, a hospitable experience or whether whoever they interact with. And so that's like, honestly, like we teach, I think that's the number one thing that we nail in and we don't stop. People make can make as many mistakes as they want. I don't care if you make mistakes, but you have to have the customer feel like you are on their side. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and if you don't enjoy doing that, I'm still the head busser, head, you know, whatever. And every time I walk in, you know, and making people happy, if you don't enjoy making people happy and seeing them leave, you know, happy and like serving them, you know, we are servers. That's who we are, whatever, whatever sort of rhetoric we want to use for the term that I was politically correct in today. So, but you know, that is what we enjoy, need to enjoy doing. And it's not for everybody. And I say that sometimes if you're not, if you're not getting enjoyment out of, you know, serving people, then it's not, it's not the best job for you. And that's totally okay. Like my brother, there's no way he doesn't like it. He would never do it. Like, you know, I love him and he's a great at what he does. So, um, but you got to get some enjoyment out of, you know, serving people. So. Yeah. 
Um, and you are in the service industry yeah, <laughs> with 10, 10 businesses for sure. What are some of those books that you've read? What do you have like a top two books that as you're building your leaders that you tell them, Hey guys, you just have to read this book or these two books. Well, there's a couple of books. I mean, I, um, that aren't even about leadership. I give them the Paulo Cello, the alchemist was a great book uh-huh. that, so the alchemist has nothing to do, but it's about searching and it's about treating people and it's about being open to the world. Obviously, Danny Meyer's book, Setting the Table, I think it's called, mm-hmm. which is very relevant in sort of the restaurant industry. And then I used to read a lot of, um, you know, I spoke about sports. I used to read a lot of managers books. Like there was a manager by the name of Tony La Russa who managed the Cardinals for years. And, you, and he uh, wrote an awesome book about managing and same thing with Joe Torre, even though I hate the Yankees, but you know, like Joe Torre wrote a book um, that was awesome as well. These guys that were managed for years um, and it was fascinating. And over the reason why I also build managers and leaders is over a certain time, at some point they stopped listening to the same persons, you know, and there's, you need new blood to come in and teach and, and to do that. So um, I can't remember the LaRusa book or the Torre book, um, and then Phil Jackson was the coach of the Bulls. Um, so he wrote also about sort of managing that superstardom. But he also, what I've referenced before, is like guys that can do the dirty work and that are still feel as important because you can't have all Michael Jordans on your on your team. You can't have all Michael Jordans inside of your business. There's gonna there's all different jobs to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, you got to make sure that those people that are doing the other jobs that aren't the MJs of the world feel like they're making a difference inside of their workplace. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read Tony LaRusso's book. Um, I have to pick that one up. It's awesome. It's older. They just, the White Sox just hired Tony LaRusso back actually. So impressive. I don't know about that. Have you ever read any of John Wooden stuff? Yeah, no, I didn't. What's that book called? I saw, seen that. Yeah. Uh, He's actually written a few different books he do you he read several of them um but there's one i think called like on john wooden and it's a lot of his sayings and his did perspectives of like yeah i did um is it good? Shane hollingsworth recommended it to me it was it's awesome good. yeah i liked it i'll read it i need a good book right now anyway yeah yeah I'll, I'll shoot you some other ones um i need a good book i just said that actually on sunday i was like i need a good book this is the last sunday it's going to be, I'm trying to get obviously everything ready for winter, but I'm like, are you looking when the weather turns, I need a couple of good books for Sunday morning. Yeah. Are you looking for uh, something as far as business wise or just something to entertain yourself? All of the above. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, yeah. There's a trilogy out there. Um, I have to look it up. I can't recall it off the top of my head. Um, that is remarkable. And it, you can definitely spend some time on this trilogy. Um, really? Yeah. And it starts from basically the beginning of the 1900s and it ends at around the time when Obama was elected president. Oh, I think I read about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd said tip of my tongue, but I can't think okay. of it at the moment, but I'll think, get it for you. I know. I think we're going to all be I don't know, a little bit maybe on, on lockdown soon here, the way that these yeah. things are going. So I need some more books. <laughs> I think it's, um, I, I really applaud you for the time that you commit to to finding time to read because there's a lot of business leaders who are not out there looking for something to fill their minds with in, in the world of of, uh, of reading of information and no matter what the topic it is it's just reading because it's continually teaching and learning from something yeah 
I'm always trying to be a better person. So I think that's my biggest thing in life. It's a, my, uh, so I'm always trying to, you know, be a better dad, be a better husband, be a better employer, friend. So, and I mean, don't applaud me. I, I, I don't do a great job of, I don't have a ton of time as much to read. That's why I'm saying I'm like, I need to, I need to get back into it because sometimes a, a good book is your best friend for sure. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we all lose, you know, the momentum or the that yeah. cadence of of something, but you've done it, um, and you, you're able to talk about it, and and then also share that information with with the people who are in your organization, and then giving it to your kids. And and you're right, we can all learn to be better people. Nobody's perfect, and if we all have that, like you said, I want to be a better person, then just think about where the world will be. True. Yeah. Um, I do want to ask you about your community involvement as, yeah. as kind of a wrap up because you and your businesses and the peop- your leaders in your organization are very involved in, in this community and you give back to the community um, very graciously. Why do you teach people to have that perspective and to get involved? Well, a couple of things. One is I came here and on top of working, I tried to volunteer when I was younger as well, like Teton Literacy Program. Uh, you know, I love kids even before I had kids, but like, you know, coaching soccer, like I was always trying to give back and volunteer time. Like, you know, obviously there's organizations and people can, you know, give money and they can also give time and, and both need to be looked at equally. And um, they both do, they get, they accomplish the goal to get an organization to where they need to get to. And so, um, you know, when I was 21, 22, there was no, I didn't have any money to give. I could give my time. Uh, and, uh, and I volunteered and um, got involved in the community. And what I realized was, and this is what kept me here in Jackson was, you know, how amazing this, this community is actually, uh, it's pretty impressive. Um, I don't think I would have stayed here, uh, you know, wouldn't, because it's not like any other ski town, not to, bash other ski towns but we all know the difference of what the jackson hole is is is, it is a real community it's not you know it's not a stop off of i-70 you know and uh, a pull off you know and and those places are great don't get me wrong i love going there for weekends and having fun but what did keep me here was the people and the community and just the opportunity to get involved in in whether it was the literacy program or the center for the arts or um any of these things that have continued to pop up over the years. So that first and foremost, it fed me so selfishly. It fed a different part of my sort of being that I needed. Like, yes, I love being in the restaurants and doing all that and, and building that. But it fed me a whole different that maybe it fed my own personal self-worth or what it, I don't even know. Like, or just like accomplishments. It fed me um, what I needed as well that was not about business and not about that. So that is where it started. I was just trying to feed my soul in a different way and feed my brain and, um, you know, my being by volunteering and doing that with kids and literacy and coaching, et cetera. Um, and then as it continued, as we got businesses, I realized how important it was to help support all of these things that were actually supporting all of our employees and myself and all, all these amazing things that added to the community that got people to come here that eventually you know, we were the benefactors of because they would come out to eat and drink and all the above. So we were, we were all these things needed to succeed, to get more people to be here and more like really cool people to stay here and work and, and sink their teeth into something. And eventually, obviously, you know, it would come back to us because people would want to go out and eat and drink and have a good time. 
um, to give back to your community is like, you know, in, in Danny Meyer's book, he talks about tenants of hospitality and it's, you know, employees and customers and suppliers and your community, I think is one of the things he talks about. And um, I just felt continually, continuously lucky to be here and I'm very appreciative of all the people in the community. And I really wanted to see all of those things continue to succeed. And then we started the two for two program, which instead of we used to do two for ones in the off seasons and, um, you know, how would, how could we engage, you know, and help give back in a way, because people would always come, it just, you know, people would always come and ask for money and donations all the time. And it was, it was great. And we'd always give, <laughs> we'd always, as you know, you know, we always give out. So we were like, all right, how do we, how do we figure out how to like give back in a way that also, you know, gives some exposure to these um, organizations and gets people in to the restaurants. And um, so that's when we came up with the two for two um, program where we would give $2 for the entree back to that organization for each week. But, you know, I think, you know, as well as I do that, you know, it is, it's the amazing part about living here. Um, and it, it is what kept me, he, he kept me here for sure that it's special in that way that there are so many interesting people that want to start the super interesting organizations and everybody's on board. And then during all this, during COVID, you know, holy shit. I mean, like, it's amazing to see what everybody's done around here. It's in, it's insane. And I'm on a lot of calls and with organizations over the last little bit. And you know, everybody's heart's in the right place for sure. You know, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. And the community has been good to me. So um, we got to give back to the community. So, well, I, I know that the community really appreciates what you do and um, your organizations, how you guys uh, are so committed and, I liked what you said that you were looking for ways to feed your soul and feed your brain. And I love that giving back to the community is for you is, is a way to do that. And um, I appreciate you also saying about time and money. There's both of those things that the community needs that nonprofit organizations or just organizations in a community need, and, and they're both equally important. So for anybody who's listening and feels as though, well, I don't have money, we all have time. We all have the same amount of time. It's just a matter of where you want to commit it to. And I think that when I commit and volunteer to an organization, that the feeling, that happiness that you talk about of when people walk into your your organizations, your businesses, it's how people feel. And you can get that when you get back to other people. Yeah. I tell all my employees, that you know, people that are struggling, you know, to kind of find their groove and whether they want to still be a server or a cook or all of the above and they have some time, I tell them to feed, I'd say, go, go volunteer. Like pe people would love for you to volunteer in this organization. What's, what's something else that, that, you know, that you're interested in. I'm sure they would, you know, and I, you know, there's so many really young, intelligent, vibrant kids around here that can give back in so many ways. And, um, you know, it's such an, I think it'd be mentors. And we talked about mentors, big brother programs for kids or, you know, go, you know, not now, old age homes, go work there if you like, you know, want, you know, but I think it's, um, I suggest it a lot to kids that are struggling in their 20s here trying to find their way and, you know, mm -hmm. don't want to just, you know, don't want to just ski or bike and then come to work and, you know, some of that, they, they need something else and, and it's helped, I think, a bunch because there's something about giving, right? You know, it's like, I think the art of giving, there's a lot of pleasure to give and, you know, whether you give a gift for Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever, or you're, you know, sort of giving of your time. So it does, it does bring you some, hopefully it brings joy. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that, that perspective. And, yeah. and I'm sure uh, when people are listening, they will find a little bit of inspiration from you, which, which you are an inspiring guy. Um, you have a lot going on there. 
Um, to, to wrap things up, Gavin, if yeah. somebody wanted to connect with you, uh, what is a way that they could reach out to you? Gavin at jhfinedining.com. All right. <laughs> you can send me an email. Give me a call. Probably easier to send an email than my cell phone number. But um, but yeah, reach out. I'd love to. And I have a lot of people reach out, which is awesome, which is really super nice to see people want to just reach out and learn X, Y, or Z or have a cup of coffee or a beer or whatever. And or now a socially distant conversation. Or But yeah, I'm happy to happy to chat with anybody. Thank you. And do you know some beer to drink? Yeah, some. There's a lot of good beer around. So yeah, we're, we're lucky. We live in a cool place that has some really good beer. So we got Roadhouse beer, a bunch of local, uh, other people make great beer too. Yes, they do. We're pretty lucky. So yes. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of good beer out there now. Stuff that's nice. right. Yes. Depends on your flavor, you know, but yeah, but you back in the day, I don't, you know, I don't know. True story. I'll finish, like, you know, when we opened the bistro, I was talking about wine. Right. But when I was over, I also tasted all these awesome beers you know, and there's lack of a story. There's, you know, in this in beer distribution, you need to have a distribution license to bring the beer in. So you're not allowed to just, if you're a restaurant, you're not allowed to just buy a beer. So like these things like Chime Ale and all these like cool European things I was trying to bring in, you know, back in the day, I think I, maybe I talked to you. I would, I'd be like, try to get the distributors to bring in all these cool different Belgians. You know, um, when we first 20 years ago, we, you know, there wasn't a lot of choices to buy here uh, you know the, the one butt distributor and one course distributor but yes and they they had you know markets that were not but i was i worked so hard to get a couple in i remember i got uh, what was it called before osprey uh, dunlap distributing yeah, yeah yeah i got dunlap distributing to bring in like two belgians i remember it was like so awesome i brought them to the beach show and i had to convince a couple stores i can't remember to also take it to i'm like please take some of this beer and so they could they could sell it because they're like nobody's gonna buy it. I'm like, yeah, I promise you. Come on, it's really cool. Uh, and now now the beer industry is on fire. So yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, I remember Pete telling me because they opened the liquor store in '85, right? And initially, the offerings that they had was just dismal, right? And he would drive to Colorado to get microbrews down there <laughs> and bring them back because they weren't distributed out here so he could go get them and yeah um, <laughs> I, yes we had um ave do you know avery right yeah so i remember we used to those guys used to drive us kegs to the bistro mm -hmm. from colorado because like we were like, oh we loved avery and it wasn't distributed and so they would drive us they're like yeah we'll come up to jackson totally cool we want to come up and so you know we didn't go through that much beer back in the day and we only had a couple of taps and and so they would drive and we would hold like six or eight kegs, you know, for the amount of time when the guy would come back again. I can't remember the guy's name, but yeah, it was awesome. And he would just sit there at the bar, we'd have a couple of beers and then he'd hit the road and go back to Colorado. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Gavin, I really do appreciate the time that you have taken out of your busy schedule to share with the listeners today and myself. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. We'll see you soon. Good luck out there, man. All right. You too. Bye. Cheers. Bye. To learn more about Gavin and the Fine Dining Group, visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com, episode number 114. Everybody out there who's listening, please give us a five-star rating 
and review on how you listen to your podcast. Many thanks to everybody who helps the Jackson Hole Connection stay on the air each week. All of our faithful listeners, my wife, Laura, my boys, Lewis and William, my editor, Michael Morey, marketing director, again, Michael Morey, and my music director, Luke Taylor. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of The Jackson Hole Connection.